I'm turning now to the book of Revelation, chapter 21, and the first two verses of the chapter. Revelation, chapter 21, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And our subject is the destination of life. Now many people have no interest at all in the afterlife. They're completely unconcerned. There may be a fear of death, Apprehension about death, that's biologically natural, but there is no concern about the afterlife. Now that in itself is unnatural. It is somewhat unusual. There have always been people who are unconcerned about death, but not on the scale of the present day. The last uh, hundred years has been a steady movement towards the discarding of any understanding of or belief in the afterlife. It's unnatural and it's strange because human beings have a strong instinct about the afterlife. King Solomon of old expressed this in the book of Ecclesiastes, the preacher, and he says, God has set what the Hebrew says is eternity in our hearts. Actually, our King James Version translates it as the world, sets the world in our hearts. But it's almost universally agreed now that that's not quite the right way of rendering the Hebrew word, but eternity is the translation. And so it is. The uh, Hebrew uses a word which means that which is veiled from sight is in our hearts. God has set that in our hearts. That which is concealed. In fact, it can be rendered most literally something like this. That which is the vanishing point has been set in our hearts. And it's a clear reference to eternity. After time, eternity. Well, that is an instinct that everyone has. It's easy to prove. We were talking about this not many weeks ago. But in every culture around the world, there's the afterlife is represented in some form. People think about it. It's natural to human beings. Well, there is no rational explanation about that, except that it is a God-given instinct written in the Constitution. But through steady and determined programming, the programming of rationalism, the programming of materialism, you can brainwash people and you can make that an embarrassing concept and largely get rid of it. 
It might still be there in some shadowy form. To most people, however, have succumbed to the brainwashing of recent uh, decades. The determined, intensive activity to get eternity out of our minds and the afterlife. It's an unnatural thing. People walk around and they say, well, I'm a liberated person. I'm not one of those religious people. I'm a a rationalist and I'm liberated and I don't believe in that. Oh, no. You don't believe in it because, uh, well, it's been brainwashed out of you. You've been susceptible to the constant barrage of uh, discrediting of the afterlife that comes at us in modern times. That's the reality. You're not the great free one. You're the susceptible one. And so we all are, by nature, ready to be brainwashed, ready to get rid of God. Well, this is a passage about heaven, about the eternal realm, about afterlife. So we'll look at it this evening in a kind of expository manner, if we can. Look through a number of verses. There's so much of this in the scriptures, in the Bible, from cover to cover, this picture of eternity. And that's my work, to try to point you to eternity, to eternal life. Of course, I can't give it to you. I have no power for that. I couldn't get myself into eternal life. The only one who can bring us into eternal life is God and Christ the Lord in particular, second person of the Godhead who came into this world to be our saviour. So I point to him and the possibility and the prospect and that's what we're here this evening for. This book of Revelation is wonderful and fascinating. It is an unusual book, and if you've dipped into it, if you've looked at it, you've been puzzled because, of course, it's written in symbols. It's all symbols. John, the Apostle John, tells us that very early in the book, that these are not the realities, these are symbols of realities. Why is it written in symbols? Which is mysterious to us if we don't understand how it works. Well, it's written in symbols because from the vantage point of the apostles, it was about future things. The book of Revelation is entirely concerned with the history of the world between the two comings of Christ. Christ came into this world, as you know, to be our Redeemer, our Sin-Bearer, our Saviour. He died and rose again, and he's coming again. He will return, and he will end this entire world order and bring in the day of judgment and the day of everlasting bliss for those who have sought him and found him and love him through the history of the world. And between the two comings of Christ, the one over 2,000 years ago, the other at any time now and onwards. Well, the history of the time in between is here 
in the book of Revelation. But obviously, from the vantage point of the New Testament, in speaking of these things, this book cannot name names, and it cannot describe in detail the things that will take place in the world. So it describes them in symbols. They're not impossible to understand symbols, because all the symbols pretty well in the book of Revelation have been employed before in the Bible. So we look back and we, ah, we say, it's clear and obvious what that indicates and what that is pointing to. So the book describes future things. Its main burden is to tell the story of the great battle that takes place throughout history between the church and the world. The people of God and Christ working through them and all those who reject God and refuse him. So it's put simply, the battle between God's people, the church, and those who are against God and against this message. And it works, it's like a Greek drama. It's been described in this way, and it's a good description. It's like a Greek drama in seven acts. There are seven sections to the book, and each one covers the same time. It starts at the beginning of the church and it finishes at the end of the age. So why are there seven scans of world history? Seven of them, all starting and finishing at the same place. Because each one deals with a different aspect of the battle and how it will proceed. Now, I'm not going to explain all that tonight, but that's just a, an overview of the book of Revelation. That's how it works. And in this 21st chapter, we're at the very end of time. And we're talking about a new heaven and a new earth in verse 1. In other words, the judgment has taken place. Christ has returned. The world has been judged and those who are believers in Christ have been taken up by him, with him, to heaven to join all those who have gone before. And those who reject him have gone. They've perished. They too will come forth to judgment, but the world has been ended and everything has been destroyed. Now, something amazing and marvellous has taken place. All the particles of the, this destroyed world have been gathered together by God and reconstituted and recreated, remade into a new earth, probably vastly bigger, Possibly recognizable in some geographical respects, who knows? But a planet or place more marvelous in every way than it ever was before, even with an entirely different biology underlining it, because there will be no death there. 
And all will be sustained by the mighty power of God. And somehow this new earth will be united with heaven itself. So it's described as a new heaven and a new earth. It's a new order. It's the eternal, spiritual, and yet physical realm where all the people of God will dwell and God will be with them and Christ, their visible Lord, will be their King and their God beyond the power of the human mind to describe why it's described in symbols. Our poor limited minds can't see it, can't grasp it. If the features of the new heaven and earth could be revealed to us, we wouldn't be able to take it in. So it has to be put into symbols so that we long for it and desire it and understand it's going to happen even though in this present limited sinful realm we can't see the whole of it as it is. And I, John, verse 2 saw the holy city. What's the holy city? The new Jerusalem. What does it symbolize? Well, it symbolizes the church, the people, those who have found the Lord, those who have had their sins forgiven and be given new lives and found him and walk with him. Now they're in heaven, but they're depicted as a symbol as a city, we can tell that this is the church because, look, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. So though it's a city, this is a mass of saved human beings, saved humans. This is people and can be described equally as a bride. Who's the husband? Well, Christ, of course. Now Christ is going to enter into his eternal kingship, and the people of God are brought to him. So verses 1 and 2, but we go through, because I'm going to ask the question, who are these people? Depicted here as the holy city, Who are they exactly? Well, we find it in verse 3. I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God. Tabernacle is an old word meaning tent, or if you like, dwelling place. Behold, the dwelling of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. And they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them, and be their God. What doesn't that tell you about the people? If these are people who will have an eternal, intimate connection with the Almighty God, these are people who have been purified. These are not people still with their sin and still with their guilt. To have union with God and to see Christ in glory and to relate to him and worship him and know him and be in his realm so that he makes his home our home 
and our home his home. That means we have been made holy and pure and perfect. Who are these people? There's a vast company of people. They come from every age of history. They've believed in Christ. They come from every land and nation. And now they're together in fellowship, in the eternal glory. And they have been made by God perfect. It's a wonderful place, this. There is no sin there of any kind. In this community, this marvelous community, there is no selfishness. There is no hatred or hostility. There is no uh, pride and vain glory. There are no lies. There's no misrepresentation. There's no betrayal. There's nothing like that. It's a place of such purity and happiness and harmony because it's the home of God. It's the presence of God, the place of purity and perfection. Why? When we come to Christ on earth and we seek forgiveness of sin and he forgives us and he gives us a new life, we get a big step forward. We're on the pathway of holiness. We are being improved by the Lord all the time. But when we go to heaven and in this last eternal state, we will have been transformed by the Lord. Amazingly, we will all have characteristics which are individual to us. I can't imagine all of them at all. But uh, it be just as it is on earth, where everybody's that bit different from everybody else. And everyone has their own features and characteristics of personality and manner and appearance and behavior. There'll be many distinctives distributed around us and we shall know each other as being distinct individual people and we'll recognize each other. And yet in some senses we'll be strikingly similar in this purity and perfection and unselfishness and kindness and love. These are the characteristics because it's the place where God is dwelling with us, the God of purity and perfection, the God of sinlessness, and that will be the characteristic. Who are these people? They're people who've been forgiven, people who've been saved. Look a little more at the features of heaven in verse 4. God shall wipe away all tears for their, from their eyes. No grief, no sorrow, no parting, because there shall be no more death, no more dying, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, no suffering, no sickness. What privileges! For the former things are passed away. But now when we come to verses 5 and 6, we see more on not who are these people, but how they came to be there. How did they come to be in eternal glory? And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. 
And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And here it is, verse 6. He said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet. It is Christ. It is through Christ that everything began, that the world and the universe were made. There was God the Father, and there was God the Son, Jesus Christ, and there was the Holy Spirit, and the Godhead deputed to Christ the task of creation, to create all things. So he's the Alpha, he began it all, and he is the one who brought it to a close from the perspective of this chapter with his second coming. He ended this whole period of time, the history of the world as we know it. He's the beginning and the end. He's the beginning and the end of our being saved. It is he, Christ, who came and suffered and died on Calvary's cross where God the Father put upon him all the guilt of the sin of those who would be forgiven, of those who would seek him. And he suffered that eternal punishment due to our sin instead of us. So he made the way of salvation. It was his work that achieved it. It's through what he's done on Calvary's cross that he can forgive millions and millions of people through the history of the world and bring them to himself. And he is the one who gathers them home to heaven at the end of life's journey and at the end of the world. So he's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end in salvation as well as in creation. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. I will give unto him that is a thirst. Who are these people? Well, they are people who, in the course of their lives, found themselves in tremendous need. It came to them that they were sinners under the condemnation of God, going to judgment, and they needed the mercy and the forgiveness and the love of God. So thirsting, thirsting, they came to God and went on their knees and they prayed for forgiveness and new life and put their trust in Christ and handed over their lives to the government of God. They're the people, those who have known what it is to thirst. Do you thirst, friends? May God help you to thirst for the greatest thing, a heavenly destination, the forgiveness of sin, companionship with the Lord in life and forever. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain 
of the water of life. What a picture. A mighty fountain of life. What sort of a fountain is this? Well, it's a, it's a huge one. It's a massive fountain. It isn't the Niagara Falls, but that's a good illustration of a tremendous quantity of water, thousands of tons of water cascading down. Many, many years ago, I saw the Niagara Falls. I dare say some of you have. I was preaching in Ontario. What power that water had and went down to the cave viewing position behind the falls. I wanted to see the Victoria Falls. And I was preaching many years ago in Lusaka, but I never got down to the Victoria Falls. It's twice as high. Well, that's not quite what the Apostle John had in mind. He had some great fountain coming out of a rock, as in the Holy Land, and cascading down the side and to the ground. But it was, depicts, this is a fountain that depicts the tremendous power of water. The fountain is about cleansing. Doesn't matter how deep stained your soul, how great your sin, what terrible things you've done. You may be one of those described here as those who are abominable, those who are liars, those who are unclean. It may be constant selfishness running throughout your life. Whatever our sins, however great, the mercy of God is so great that when we come to Christ, that sin can be forgiven and you can be rebuilt by God and renewed and given a new life and a new nature and a new beginning. The fountain of water cleanses. The fountain of water is invigorating. All the countryside around, a great spring or fountain is irrigated and green. The two functions, the cleansing and the life-giving power of a mighty fountain and the power that it depicts, the power of God to convert and his kindness and mercy in a mighty torrent. Oh, dear friends, listen to this. Ah, I will give unto him that is athirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. You'll be converted. There'll be a battle then, a battle against your remaining sin. And you'll long for righteousness, and God will help you. He that overcometh, verse 7, shall inherit all things. But you will overcome, because if Christ saves you, you're saved forever. Don't forget, Christ promised life to those who come to him. And that's everlasting life. You cannot be lost if you repent of your sin 
and yield your life to him and you truly find him and he changes you, you will never be finally lost. Him that overcometh shall inherit all things, all the things described at the beginning of the chapter. And I will be his God and he shall be my son. You'll be adopted infinitely better than being adopted by somebody who is a billionaire, who has umpteen homes and villas and palaces, if you like, infinitely better than being adopted into the royals, infinitely better to being adopted into the greatest business magnate's family in the world. You're adopted into the family of God. You don't become divine, of course, like God. But what status? A child of the living God. And he will possess you and care for you. You're under his wing. He'll take you by his mighty love all the way to glory. A child of God. He shall be my son. And what will happen if I spurn him? If I spit at him? If I scoff at him? If I disbelieve in him? Verse 8. But the fearful. Fearful. I'll explain what that means. The fearful and the unbelieving and the abominable and murderers, whoremongers, sorcerers, idolaters, liars shall go to judgment and to destruction. Dear friends, look at these terms. The fearful. Fearful of what? This is a sinful fearfulness. Why, this is Fear of God in the wrong sense. I don't want God. I don't want anything to do with God. Why not? Because I don't want to be restrained in my behavior. I want to do what I want to do. Sin how I want to sin. I don't want to be restricted by so-called holiness, godliness, righteousness. That's what it means here by the fearful. The people who are in a wretched sense afraid of companionship with God. I don't want that. I don't want light and understanding and a new nature and holy behavior. I don't want God and his purposes and his standards. I don't want to learn of him and worship him. I'm afraid of all that in the worst sense of the word. That's what it's referring to here. And the unbelieving and the abominable. What does the Apostle John mean when he narrates this? The words of God, the abominable. Well, it's easy to interpret. Right back in the very first books of the Bible, the abominable are the people who cultivate and do 
for the sake of sinful indulgence, unnatural things. The abominable, the whole LGBT scene, the quest for kicks out of the utterly unnatural is what is described in the Bible as abominable, unthinkable, disgusting, outside language to condemn. Murderers, whoremongers, sorcerers, idolaters, people who love things that are alternatives to God, and all liars. Well, every sinner, all of us, would be condemned. But for the love of Christ, but for the possibility of forgiveness and salvation through Christ, God, who is outraged at our sin and indignant against our sin and must punish and judge it, it is his holy character to do so, has gone so far out of his way to provide us with a way of salvation, a saviour who suffered and died in astonishing love, even for his enemies. And if we repudiate that, and if we scorn that, there's only judgment for us. Our time is up. I wanted to tell you more. There's some glorious things in these other verses, but I've spent too long, and I just go to the very end of the chapter, and I close. And there shall in no wise enter into it, into the eternal glory, anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie. But here are the people who will be brought in, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. The Lamb, of course, is the Saviour who went to Calvary's cross like a lamb. The Lamb is Christ. The book is the list of all the people for whom he died. All the people who would come in the course of time to trust in him and depend upon him and call upon him for forgiveness and for new life. Their names are in the book of God's elect, the Lamb's book of life. Friends, what's going to happen to us? How are we living? How can we be forgiven? How can we get in? Oh, that this will be the question uppermost in your mind in the next hours and days. How can I be included in that great company of ultimate, place of ultimate happiness and bliss and understanding? The verses I've not covered speak of it being like transparent gold in its purity and in its truth and understanding. Our minds will be set free. 
our level of pleasures and happiness and enjoyment and our views of God will be so magnificent. How can I be in that place? Lord, help me to see. You need Christ. You need to trust in him. You need to ask him. Repent of your sin and give yourself to him. You must, dear friends. You must go to heaven. The alternative is a terrible eternity. Let's pray together. O God, our gracious Heavenly Father, write these things on our hearts. Bless and help everyone in this church tonight. Grant, O God, we may not be able to dismiss these things, for that we shall hunger and thirst after heaven and after Christ and seek him and find him. We ask it in his name, for his sake. Amen.